There has been a shocking rise in the number of people ditching Christianity, what sociologists call nonverts. Pew Research Center estimates that Christians will be a minority of Americans by 2070 if current trends continue. So today, we want to look at why this is happening and what Christians can do about it. This is The Renovation Podcast. The Renovation Podcast is brought to you by Church Anywhere. Each week, we will take a look at some challenging topics and talk to special guests as we strive to help people renovate their faith. Here are your hosts, Randy Kirk and Tyler Sansom. Listen to this quote. In their 2016 book, Churchless, George Barna and David Kinnaman demonstrate their findings that two in every three unchurched American considers themselves spiritual people, and that more than half of Americans say that their faith is very important to their lives. Moreover, they found that 99% of people are aware of Christianity, and 69% of people hold a favorable view towards it. And yet, at the same time, nearly half of all Americans see no value in personally attending church. Whether we want to admit it or not, the church has an image problem. Randy, what do you think about that quote? I uh, listened to those statistics, and uh, sadly, I think they're accurate, or they may be a little low. Uh, I think that it is frustrating to recognize what's happening to the American church today. The quote goes on to say, the problem in the American church is not theirs, it's ours. Ouch. That, uh, that changes things for us. Uh, it's so easy to put it all on them. Yeah, this is back in 2016 from a book in 2016 that goes on to say we need to spend the next coming years taking a long, hard look in the mirror and listening more than we talk if we really want to turn the tide of this departure that we've created. Now, that was from 2016. The article that I found this quote in was from 2018, and here we are in 2023, and this mass exodus isn't slowing down any. So why? What happened? What, what has caused all of this? I think there's probably answers Christians like to give. Yeah. The trendy thing to do right now is to leave the church. At least that's what we would like to say. And so uh, we would excuse ourselves by saying, you know, they just uh, followed the crowd. There are others that I've heard this said before. Well, they never really bought in anyway. They really weren't Christian. Uh, they really never believed. And then, then there are those who would, would say the issue is um, the world's okay. The world doesn't agree with what the church teaches. So I'm, I'm in this tension. I'll just go with the world. Uh, we like to put the onus on them. Rarely on ourselves. We, we want to make this about how they failed, not how about we could have done things different. We, we don't want to uh, have any responsibility for their leaving. But today, let's talk about those that have left. When asked one of them, uh, one of them said, I come, we come from a long line of leavers. 
I think that's a great quote. I really do. It's uh, There have always been people that have left the church, but today it's different. Before, when people left, they claimed to still be Christian. But now when they leave, they say that they are deconstructing. Now, I found a definition of that. I, you, we can talk about whether it's a good one or not later, but deconstruction is the process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting the beliefs you previously had. Now, deconstruction is a pretty hot topic right now, but I think it breaks down into really kind of two camps of deconstruction. Some people have left the faith and they've turned combative. They've, they've become angry. Others would say that they are disenchanted with what the church has become. And I would categorize those people as demolishing their faith. On the other hand, there are people who want to renovate their faith. Those are the people that are searching for something. They're asking lots of questions and they want to come out on the other side with a faith that looks a little bit different than before. There have always been people that wrestled with faith issues. You know, uh, a man came to Jesus and said, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Uh, people have questioned faith for a long time, but, but it's different today. Previous generations would leave the church, but when you caught them and talked to them, they would cl still claim to be Christians. I'm just not a practicing Christian, whatever that is. There was still a bridge to come back across. But today, Today, when people leave, you hear them say that, uh, uh, ask about their religious preference. They say, I have none. It's the nonverts. The nonverts. No allegiance at all. And they've burnt the bridge. Uh, or others, sometimes they haven't necessarily burnt the bridge. They have, instead of crossing the bridge, they've just looked for a faith that is shaped completely different than any faith they held to before. So I think the first question we probably should ask is why did they leave? Like if we're going to step into these topics and we're going to step into trying to fix this issue and do a better job on our end, I think we need to know the why at the beginning. According to a survey of around 1,200 people from the Baptist News back in December of 2022, uh, here are some of the actual answers that people gave for the reason that they were leaving the church, the big C church. Now, you may or may not agree with these, but that doesn't matter right now, because right now is a time for us to listen before defending. And we've categorized these reasons into four different groups. The first group is what we call people failure. You might call it hypocrisy. It would include those pastors that preach purity, but have had moral failures. It would include believers who just treat other believers so horribly. And worse yet, it includes believers who treat the outside people horribly. Uh, that would be groups uh, specifically that were mentioned, including the LGBTQ plus community. It would be people that are like uh, immigrants or other races were ones that were specifically mentioned. So it's not just how believers treat other believers. It's how believers treat people on the outside as well. It's people failure. It's how people in the church have failed. So there's people failure. And then the second category that, that we would offer would be God failure. It's when God hasn't lived up to our expectations. 
It's why do bad things happen to good people? It's why didn't God answer my prayers? Uh, It's unanswered questions that people have asked about how God works or who he is, and they've been left to deal with those answers on their own, and then they kind of blame it on God. So we gave uh, people failure as the first and God failure as the second. Let Let me propose a third, cultural influences. When groups with agendas become a part of the church and they bring those agendas into the church with them, and they uh, they want you to think like they think and act like they act. Uh, the survey would include groups like Christian nationalism or white evangelicalism. I think now is a good time to point out specifically on this survey that around four out of every five people that answered the questions listed some combination of the church and politics as a main reason for leaving the faith. There's one more. There's one more reason that that we would categorize, and that's shame. There are many who have been a part of the church, and yet were making lifestyle choices that were in contradiction with what they understood the church not only taught, but what God would will. And it's just created guilt and shame. And in order to deal with that guilt and shame, some have chosen to leave the church so that they can continue those lifestyle choices. On the flip side of that, though, from the survey, many people have blamed this culture of guilt that the church has created as a reason for leaving. It's when guilt is used to control and manipulate people to behave like Christians want them to behave. It's off-putting, and and people leave, and often they end up having this immense amount of shame and mental health issue due to this guilt culture that was from their childhood. And when you listen— You hear hurt, you hear discouragement, you hear anger, you hear hopelessness. People needed to talk about their faith struggle. They needed love. They needed listening ears. And instead, what they got was arguments, and they got judgments. And so, Tyler, what's happened is they've asked hard questions, and they've either been ignored or just uh, flippantly given some answer that was uh, really not satisfactory at all. So others watched that, and they just suppressed their questions. And then there are those who have had these horrible, horrible experiences in the church with church members. And uh, so what you've got are hard questions plus grievous experiences and together they lead to distrust. It begins with a distrust of Christians and the church and ultimately ends up with a distrust of God. Yeah, so the fact is people are leaving. As much as we don't want them to, they are leaving. And it's been happening for a long time. But as Christians, we have to start addressing this issue. And I think to do that, we have to look at what God has to say to us about it. So let's start with the basics. Love God and love people. Love the Lord with all your heart and love your neighbor. It's the the two commands that Jesus gives his followers. So how do these two pieces apply to this, Randy? Well, love God. Do you love God? Well, yeah. Yeah, obviously. All right. So we can check that one off and walk away, right? Uh, you played this game with me the other day that was a little bit convicting. You you took that phrase, do you love God, and you added two little words. You added, do you love God more than? 
you know, it reminds me of a time where Jesus asked that question. Uh, there was a rich young ruler that he interacted with and he wanted to follow Jesus, but Jesus asked him to go and sell all of his possessions and then he could follow him and the, the young ruler turned away. It's, do you love God more than your stuff? Yeah, it reminds me of the conversation Jesus had with Peter when they were eating breakfast on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and, and uh, Jesus turned to Peter and said, do you love me more than these? And I've always questioned when he said these, did he nod toward or look toward the other guys that were sitting there eating breakfast with him? Or did he look the other way and look down the shore at the nets and the boats? Peter, do you love me more than, I don't know. There are other questions that that raises. It's, do you love me more than comfort? Um, when somebody's questions make you uncomfortable, do you just uh, walk away? Do you just mock them, or do you face your own discomfort knowing that uh, they've asked a really important thing and you need to give a really good answer, even if you're not sure? Hmm. Uh, do you love God more than your tradition? <laughs> uh, that, by tradition, what I mean are those things that the church has embraced and made a part of them because people really like it. But it's not really rooted in scriptures. For example, what if we decided that the, uh, the church would no longer meet on Sunday mornings? Uh, that we uh, have done some study and realized that there are people who really would like to meet at a different time. Uh, would we accommodate them or would we throw a fit and quit? Uh, it's just kind of an interesting thought to play with. Do you love me more than your preferences? Uh, you played with this one with me the other day when we were talking about this. I prefer contemporary music. And you said, but what if we would do a better job reaching people if we did rap, Christian rap? Only. Only Christian rap. Yeah. Uh, well, there is no such thing as only Christian rap. No, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Um, but that sure would shake us up because that would violate what we like. And then uh, here's a hard one for me. Do you love God more than winning? Because I like to win. I'm really competitive. But the question then is, would you rather be right or do right? I, uh, I would rather, I think, do the right thing. But that's not always the truth. Do you love God? Do you love God more than... Do you love what God loves? Mm. Yeah, because the second half of that is, do you love people? By this, all men will know you're my disciples. If you love one another as I've loved you, that's what Jesus said. So do you love people? Well, yeah. The answer is yes. Obviously, it's the same as the first question, right? Except if we change the question slightly and we add an if at the end of it. Do you love people if they look different than you do? Do you love people if they believe differently than you? What if, what if they're Muslim? What if they're atheists? What if they're agnostic? Do you love people if they're from another place? What if they're not from America? Do you love people if they're wealthy, like they have more than you? Do you love people if they're poor? Do you love people who struggle with their fate? Like those who doubt the thing that you hold most dear, do you love those people who struggle with their faith. 
love God, love people. Now, those are the basics. And yet there are other principles that I think come to play here. For example, uh, there is the principle of diversity. Um, we don't all have to be alike, but we all have to get along. God loves diversity. Just look at nature. You have all these funny, funny-looking creatures. You've got uh, a platypus. You've got giraffes. You've got all of these funny little critters and funny big critters and lovable-looking critters. And, and You've got all these flowers, different shapes, different smells, different colors. I'm amazed at all the colors that God just put here for us to enjoy. God loves diversity, but we seem to love conformity. I like it when you agree with me because that means you're right. <laughs> we like conformity. God wants community. We like sameness. God wants unity. God wants to take this diverse group of people that are all different and yet bring them together in a common purpose and create something bigger than the sum of its parts. You know, it's not that Christians always get the three things we just talked about wrong. Oftentimes we do a good job of loving God. We do a good job of loving people. Uh, many times we do a good job of embracing this diversity and unity but recently, specifically, it's not what we say, it's how we say it. It's not the message, it's the method that we've messed up with. What reminds me what Paul wrote to the church in Rome. He said, he said, except those whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. He said, make accommodations for those that are struggling. And don't pick a fight over things that really don't matter. But see, here's the deal. Too often, American churches would rather be right than do right. Too often, we act just like the world, specifically in the way that we communicate. We have let culture influence the way that we communicate. Uh, we've let this so social media culture of posting how do I bake cookies and turning into an argument within five minutes infiltrate the way that we believers communicate. It happens all the time, and it's starting to seep into real life and not just social media. My wife and I went to a Colts game a few weeks ago uh, in Indianapolis, and we watched two fans a section over from us uh, go from cheering for their respective teams to cheering against each other to personal attacks on each other to two people being put in handcuffs and removed from the game because their lack of communication skills were evident there. They escalated so fast that things got out of hand. See, how we communicate affects directly what we communicate. I heard about a man who happened to hear two different preachers preach basically the same sermon. The content was very, very close to the same. But he noticed that one of the preachers presented his material with, this is the truth, take it or leave it, but I'm right. And the other presented the same material with a tear in his eye. Now, both brought the truth. But while one was only concerned about his responsibility with the truth, the other was concerned about the eternal consequences of those that were listening. Now, I'm hoping that there are people that are listening to this podcast 
who are interested in this renovation of faith idea. I'm hoping that there are people who have struggled with faith, who are struggling with faith, or faith who have struggled with the church that are listening, because what we are about to communicate is so important. And here's what we want to say to those who are listening that have either left the church or are struggling with the church. We're sorry. We're really, truly sorry for failing you. Whether we did it intentionally or unintentionally, it doesn't matter. We're sorry. We genuinely are sorry that we've represented Jesus in a way that's made you question your decision to follow him or even questioning your decision to be a part of his church. We're sorry that we haven't created a space where you can doubt. Many of you have had doubts. Many of you have said things like, I believe, help my unbelief, just like the guy in the Bible. And we didn't respond. Or if we did respond, it was flippant or arrogant or maybe even hurtful. And we are genuinely sorry. We're sorry that we put the emphasis on the wrong things. Instead of focusing on the essentials, we've drawn lines forcing you to accept our preferences. There are things that are essential, and there are things that are really important. But there are many, many, many things that we've turned into a big deal that really are only personal preferences. It's what we like. It's what makes us comfortable. And we recognize that when we have made those things, imposed those things, and made those a test for you, that we crossed the line. We drew the line in a place it never should have been. That line needs to be erased. And we apologize for our part of that. And we're sorry for all of the church hurt. Just saying that is such a, uh, such a sad state of where we're at as a church that we have to apologize for hurting you uh, so much, but we do. We're sorry on behalf of the Big C Church, but also uh, on a personal level at the church that Randy and I serve at, we are genuinely sorry if we have ever said or done something that has hurt you. See, we don't have it all figured out. But here's the deal. We are committed to following Jesus the best we can. We are committed to helping this issue of this mass exodus of people moving away from the faith. And we want to take that journey with you. If, if you're listening right now and you would number yourself among those that would say they were dis deconstructing, or maybe you're just one of those that's questioning and wondering and, and struggling with answers, uh, I've, got a, I've got a question, an important question that I want to ask you. Are you demolishing or are you renovating? Do, do you understand the question? You see, uh, whether it's demolishing or renovating all comes down to what you do with the load-bearing walls. When you demolish, you bring them down. When you renovate, you just clear out the old nasty stuff that made it look bad and you replace it with something better. But the question is, what are you doing with the load-bearing walls? The foundation on which all of those load-bearing walls rest is Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, on that foundation, though, there are truths that hold the weight of the structure, the, the load-bearing walls. And we believe that it's this. Jesus is God's Son. 
He was with God before the beginning, and we are sinners. God loves us, so he sent Jesus to save us, and Jesus came and lived a perfect, sinless life. Jesus predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and he made it happen. And Jesus wants a relationship with you. Those truths carry the weight of our faith. You can live in a home that needs to be redecorated. Most of us do. Uh, Maybe replace the carpet, uh, repair the walls, repaint them. But you can't live in a home that has no load-bearing walls. It makes me wonder what it would look like for a church, a group of people, to be completely focused on these load-bearing walls, to be dedicated to building their faith system the way they live on the load-bearing walls and not letting culture infiltrate. Now, I found an article from the 1940s this past week from Reader's Digest about a village called Shimabuku, Listen to this. It was early in 1945 when, as a war correspondent in Okinawa, I first came upon Shimabuku, the strangest and most inspiring community I ever saw. Huddled beneath its groves of bayan and twisted pine trees, this remote village of some 1,000 souls was in the path of the American advance and so received a severe shelling. But when an advanced patrol swept up to the village compound, the GIs stopped dead in their tracks. Barring their way were two little old men. They bowed low and began to speak. The battle-hardened sergeant, wary of tricks, held up his hand and summoned an interpreter. The interpreter shook his head. I don't get it. Seems we're being welcomed as fellow Christians. One says he's the mayor of the village, and the other's the schoolmaster. Guided by the two old men, we cautiously toured the compound. We'd seen other Okinawan villages, uniformly down at the heels and despairing. By contrast, this one shone like a diamond in a dung heap. Everywhere, we were greeted by smiles and dignified bows. Proudly, the two old men showed us their spotless homes, their terraced fields, fertile and neat, their storehouses and granaries, their prized sugar mill. Gravely, the old men talked on, and the interpreter said, They've only met one American before, long ago. Because he was a Christian, they assume we are too. Though, they can't quite understand why we came in shooting. Piecemeal, the incredible story came out. Thirty years before, an American missionary was on his way to Japan, had paused at Shimabuku. He stayed only long enough to make a pair of converts, teach them a couple of hymns, leave them a Japanese translation of the Bible, and exhort them to live by it. They'd had no contact with any Christian sense. Yet during those 30 years, guided by the Bible, they had managed to create a Christian democracy at its purest. How had it happened? Picking their way through the Bible, the two converts had found not only an inspiring person on whom to pattern a life, but sound precepts on which to base their society. They'd adopted the Ten Commandments as Shimabuku's legal code, the Sermon on the Mount as their guide to social conduct. In Nakamura's village government, the precepts of the Bible were law. Nurtured on this book, a whole generation of Shimabukans had drawn from it their ideas of human dignity and of the rights and responsibilities of citizenship. The result was plain to see. Shimabuku, for years, had had no jail, no brothel, no drunkenness, no divorce. 
there was a high level of health and happiness. Next day, the tide of battle swept us on. But a few years later, during a lull, I requisitioned a jeep and a speaking driver and went back to Shimabuku. Over the winding roads outside the village, huge truck convoys and endless lines of American troops moved dustily. Behind them lumbered armored tanks and heavy artillery. But inside, Shimabuku was an oasis of serenity. Once again, I strolled through the quiet village streets, soaking up Shimabuku's calm. There was a sound of singing. We followed it and came to Nakamura's house, where a curious religious service was underway. After many prayers voiced spontaneously by people in the crowd, there was a discussion of community problems. With each question, Kina turned quickly to some Bible passages to find an answer. The book's imitation leather cover was cracked and worn, its pages stained and dog-eared from 30 years of constant use. Kina held it with the reverent care one would use in handling the original Magna Carta. The service over, we waited as the crowd moved out and my driver whispered hoarsely, so this is what comes out of only a Bible and a couple of old guys who wanted to live like Jesus. Then, with a glance at a shell hole, he murmured, maybe we're using the wrong kind of weapons. When I hear that, it reminds me that C.S. Lewis said that the best argument for Christianity is Christians. I believe that. But he goes on to say that the best argument against Christianity is also Christians. It's when Christians are somber and joyless and when they're self-righteous and smug, when they are narrow and repressive. He says that Christianity dies a thousand deaths. And so that begs the question, what kind of argument are we presenting as believers today? Does the way we live our faith help or hurt the cause? Uh, now, before we finish today, let's turn the conversation, Tyler, to those that have been listening, and they're not in that camp of deconstructing or struggling or questioning. They're those that have been um, in, in a good place with their relationship with the Lord and with the church sure. all along. So how, how do you respond? What changes do we as the church, what changes do we have to make to help those who have left? And what can we do to help those who are contemplating leaving? I think the first thing we have to do is love better. We think we're pretty good at it. We love those that we like. We love those that are like us. But um, we've got to do a better job loving those who challenge us. They challenge our practices and they challenge our preferences. And I think sometimes they challenge just to see how we will respond and too often, we just give them more ammunition. I think we have to do a better job of loving those who aren't even a part of us. Our words and actions towards those in communities like the LGBTQ community, uh, those actions directly affect those who are in the church, but they're struggling with doubts. Now, what I need you guys to hear is that sin has to be recognized. Sin is sin. When Jesus saw the woman who was caught in adultery, he didn't go over and condemn her, though. He stood by her. He got down right beside of her. And when the whole ordeal was over, he told her to sin no more. 
See, the time for life change comes, but it starts with compassion. It starts with pointing them to the one who transforms people. Too often the church has said, if you behave, you can belong. And I think we've got it exactly backwards. I think that the, the process is that you belong, and then you believe, and then you become, and then you behave. Mm. That changes the behavior. Now, with that in mind, we say that we love outsiders. We say that we love all people, and we love regardless. But uh, how does that line up? with how we view the borders, um, which, which is it? <laughs> I better hurry on and remind you that Jesus said, love your enemies. I don't know if that's referring to those on the border or to me right now, but uh, Jesus is telling us to love our enemies. How does that play? And how, how do we respond when someone says God failed them? Do you think that the whole building collapses when there's a, a, a God failure, or do we help them renovate? We, we Christians need to start working to understand these load-bearing walls in a deep, deep way. We need to dig deeper roots so that when someone has a, quote, God failure, a moment where a prayer wasn't answered or uh, something in their life crumbles, we can step into that rubble. And our foundation and our load-bearing walls will be built strong enough that they give us a place to start working to help build that back for the other person. It doesn't happen, though, if we don't dig deeper roots. Now, these load-bearing walls aren't going to answer every question, but they're going to give us a place to start as we step into hard situations. You know, some people have, have left or contemplated leaving because uh, they're disappointed in the church's embracing cultural influences. Let me just tell you, I do too. I, I'm, I'm there with you. Politics won't save us, and social agendas won't fix things, but Jesus can. He can transform our lives, and He can change our community. And as he changes our lives and changes our community, we can change other communities. And ultimately, this can just ripple all through our county and our state and our nation. Uh, when, we, um, when we try to use the church to push a political agenda, we need to learn something. We need to learn. We're just being played. It's not about Jesus. It's about power. There are these issues that need to be addressed. There certainly are, absolutely. But do you think the people that are driving the train have Jesus at the center of their plan? Hmm. One of the last reasons that were uh, categorized as reasons for people leaving was shame. And that's a hard one because I get it. We all deal with shame at some point in our lives, and some of it's appropriate. Like when you know what's right and you choose to violate what's right, there ought to be some level of guilt and shame. But we need to be careful to love those who fail. We have to love those who fall rather than rush to judge them. We don't need to use guilt as a tool to manipulate allegiance and obedience. It's not working in our families, and it's definitely not working in the church. You know... Um... We took this survey and we boiled it down into categories, four broad categories. But we, you and I read through this uh, uh, list of 
excuses, reasons that, that were given. But there was one notable absence. There was one thing that uh, we might have expected to see there that we didn't. It was Jesus. You know, when I was in college, I heard a sermon that told a story about a man named Charles Templeton. And uh, so I, I, I looked it up this last week and wanted to make sure that I had all my facts straight. So I'm going to read to you now from the exact article about this man named Charles Templeton, because I think it directly applies to the fact that Jesus was not on this list. There was a time when Charles Templeton was one of the most popular evangelists in the nation. He was preaching with Billy Graham every night. During the 1950s and 60s, he preached to crowds of 10 to 30,000 people nightly. He packed stadiums. He thrilled audiences. But along the way, gnawing doubts began to work on his mind. He started questioning the reliability of the Bible, and eventually he became an outspoken atheist. In 1996, Charles Templeton published his book, which was titled Farewell to God, My Reason for Rejecting the Christian Faith. Now, in doing research for The Case for Faith, author Lee Strobel sought out and was granted an interview with Templeton in his penthouse apartment in Toronto, Canada. During the course of their conversation, Charles Templeton vigorously defended the disavowal of God and the rejection of the Bible. There was no apparent chink in the armor of his calloused soul, but then Strobel directed the old gentleman's attention to Jesus. How would he now assess Jesus at this stage of his life? Strobel says that amazingly, Templeton's body language softened. His voice took on a melancholy and reflective tone, and then incredibly, he said, he was the greatest human being who ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was intrinsically the wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my reading. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. Strobel was stunned. He listened in shock. He says that Templeton's voice began to crack, and he said, I miss him. I miss him. Well, over the next several episodes, we're going to be talking with various guests about this topic of deconstruction. We're going to do the best we can to create open dialogue about faith and struggles and reconstructing. So if you have any topics that you want us to hit, please reach out to us. You can email us at tyler at churchanywhere.us. Until next time, this was the Renovation Podcast. <laughs>